Well, this is our final week in Genesis 24, four weeks together. And I know four weeks on one story in the Bible is a long time. That's a lot of sermons based on one text. And before we even get into it, I just have to commend you guys for the way you have stuck with me through this as we have mined this text, wrung it for all of its worth, pulled every little oar and gem we could find out of it together. As your attention has been fixed on it, I just commend you for the way that you have sought God's word along with me. And can we just marvel together at how rich God's word is, that you can spend four weeks or even ten weeks on one little story in the Bible and never run out of meaning. If you haven't been here the last few weeks and you aren't familiar with the story, we're not going to read the whole thing this morning, so I'll just retell it to you before we dive into things. This is the story of the marriage of Isaac and his wife, Rebekah. And essentially what happens is Abraham has become old since he's advanced in years. He sends his chief servant, his Mr. Carson, out on a quest. He sends him out and he says, will you find a wife for my son Isaac? This is because Isaac cannot marry any of the local women because of some particularities of God's promises. And very much hinges on this because if Isaac does not find a wife, the promises of God cannot come true for he cannot bear any descendants. And this is a great part of God's promises to Abraham. So the servant goes out on his quest back to Abraham's homeland to find a wife for Abraham's son Isaac. God blesses the quest very much, provides just the right woman and just the right family and does all sorts of things lined up wonderfully. The servant brings her back. Her name is Rebecca, introduces her to Isaac. They're willing to get married. They get married. And then Isaac is comforted after the death of his mother. This brings about not only God's promises, but great comfort to Isaac in his mourning. That's the story. And we have examined a lot of facets of it, the way that God has worked miraculously to make this marriage happen. We have looked at the way that God has worked in Isaac's life to bring him comfort and delight and happiness in a wife and what that means for us. And we've even looked at the way that God's plan for human history even hinged on that marriage, right? If Isaac didn't get married, the promises of God couldn't have come true. This, this descendant, even Jesus Christ, came from their bloodline. God's plan to bring Jesus in the world revolved around even this marriage coming together and all the miracles that he worked in that day. There's one thing we haven't looked at, though, and that is that for all of the miracles God did and for all of the eternal weight that this marriage bears, one way that God accomplished his purposes was through a very wise and faithful servant who just did his job really well. So at the same time, you have God working great miracles to provide for him, and you have an ordinary man, a servant in Abraham's house, who just plain does a good job, and God accomplishes eternal things through it. We find there a teaching that everything I want to share with you this morning is kind of built on. God often does eternal work through our everyday work. God work, works often eternally through your everyday work. Often he accomplishes his purposes through wise and everyday people who do their everyday work well. If you work up the road at Popeye's and you do a good job, you're going to feed a lot of people, and the Lord loves to see people fed. If you work up at Lilly and you're a part of making medicine and you do a good job, you're going to get to be a part of bringing healing to many people, and the Lord loves to see people healed. If you work with spreadsheets and have them doing whatever it is that spreadsheets 
do. You're keeping companies running in a way that blesses people and that I don't even understand, right, through your everyday work. Those of us that hold jobs outside of the home and in the home, whether it's caring for kids or being a homemaker or caring for a loved one who is in your home and is not able to care for themselves anymore, most of us have something we do to keep ourselves busy, work that we do before the Lord. Work that is not glamorous and great and glorious, work that isn't founding the next great startup in Silicon Valley or being the next president or anything fancy and wonderful like that, just good old everyday work. When God changes people with the gospel, makes them new, he makes them into, among other things, wise workers, and he often accomplishes great purposes through that. We see that in the way that this normal everyday man, this servant of Abraham's, uh, goes on this quest, does a good job, and God uses it to bless everyone on the earth. So through that picture that we have of his good and diligent work and the way that many Proverbs in the book of Proverbs kind of come to life in the way that he works, I believe this morning that God is calling us to bless those we work with and even bless our bosses, those of us that have bosses, through Christian wisdom in the workplace. Uh, the Proverbs say early on, my son, my son, hear my wisdom, right? Treasure it like a pendant on your neck. Let it be a garland around your neck and even a crown on our heads. God gives to his children wisdom, wisdom that if we would receive it would be a crown on our head, would be a garland around our neck, like an Olympic gold medal that honors us and makes people say that person is wise. That's one of many things the Lord loves to give to his children. And he says to us this morning, my son, my son, hear my wisdom. Learn my ways for how to conduct yourself in the workplace and grow in wisdom this morning. So we're going to look at this wise servant and the way we have laid things out in our handout this morning, parts of his story are juxtaposed alongside Proverbs that his story brings to life. So we're going to look at four principles from wisdom in the Bible that come true in this servant's life that he displays for us. You'll find the first one on page nine this morning in your handout. The first one is very simple. Your boss is counting on you. Your boss is counting on you. That's number one. And this is seen in the servant's diligence and the way that it blesses Abraham and Isaac. The idea here is pretty simple. Uh, someone who does their job faithfully and wisely is a great blessing to their boss. So, Christians, do your job faithfully and do your job wisely. God, or I'm sorry, your boss is counting on you. Uh, let's, let's walk through the servant's diligence in chapter 24, and we'll see in a few places how it comes out. Uh, first, you have their chapters, I'm sorry, verses 2 through 4, and toward the end in verse 4, God gives to the servant his assignment. He says there in verse 4, go to my country and to my kindred to take a wife for my son Isaac. So he is sending them off back to where Abraham had come from. He says, go back there to find a wife for him. In verse 9, we see in the next section there that the servant receives that assignment and even swears to him, yes, I will go on this quest and I will do this for you. In verse 10, he equips himself with camels. He goes on his way. He brings all sorts of wonderful choice gifts with him. 
goes on the journey. We don't hear much about the long journey back there, probably much difficulty in traveling along the way that we'll never get to know about. And in verse 11, he takes himself right to the very best place to accomplish this mission, to the well where the fathers of the city would send their daughters to go and gather water. Wise men in that day knew, really everybody knew in that day, if you're looking for a wife, the place to go is the well because the dads are sending their teenage daughters there to draw the water. That's where the eligible women are going to be. If you want a wife, that's where you go. And so he goes right there to find a wife for Isaac. As the story transpires there, uh, he does indeed meet a woman who would be a great candidate, be a great wife for Isaac. Uh, She seems very open to this idea. She invites him to stay in her family's house. She says, well, we'll lodge you, we'll take care of your camels. The Lord works this out wonderfully. So the servant winds up in her family's home, introduced to her brother and her mother and all of these people in this extended family that live together, and they set a great feast before him, as was common in that day. When you had guests, you put a lot of food before them, and you kind of showed off how wealthy you are. The servant walks in to this wonderful feast. After a very long journey in which he must be very hungry, he has drank water now, but he has not eaten anything yet. But he is so determined in his work that in verse 33 he says, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. You see the determination and the focus that this man has. He, he didn't come there to have a good time and to eat. He says, this is great guys, thank you, but I've got a job to do. Can I first, let's get down to business first and then I will eat. He tells the story of what happened. He gives the proposal and says, will you send Rebecca back to marry uh, my master Isaac? And uh, in verses 54 to 56, after they say, yes, we will, they, they sleep for the night, they eat, they drink, they sleep for the night, he rises up the next morning and he says, okay, you guys said yes, so I'm ready to go back, right? Still, this guy is like all business. Like all he wants to do is get the job done, right? We've mission accomplished. I am headed back home. And they're like, no, 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 no. Stay for a few days. Let's have a feast together for 10 days. And he's, no, no thanks. I got, I got to go back. I got to report back to my boss. And so in verse 61, they arise, they go together. And then in verse 66, he reports back to Isaac everything that he has done. So there is a picture of someone, you know, really kind of classic story, receives an assignment, stays focused on it, is not distracted by the many ways he could have been distracted, does not run off with the gold and the gifts and all the things and go try to make his own life somewhere where he's got most of his master's possessions with him on the journey. Nope, does the job, does it well, comes back, goes before his boss and says, I did what you asked, right? Receive the job, do the job report back. Classic thing that if you're in the workplace, you have probably done several times yourself. This is a picture of what the Proverbs tell us. Let's look at Proverbs 25, 13. Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him. He refreshes the soul of his masters. This is where we get that principle today, right? Your boss is counting on you, right? When When they say, I need you too, and you say, okay, I will do whatever, and then you come back and you follow through and you do it. Some of you are bosses at work, and you know what that feels like. Oh, yes, I can count on them. Ah, that is good. By contrast, Proverbs 10, 26 tell us what happens when the opposite happens. 
Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. Some of you know what it's like. You send somebody on a mission, you're counting on somebody to do something, and they don't do it. And sometimes entire plans can fall apart, right? You've got a repair person coming to repair your dishwasher, and what you'd really like is for them to say, I'll be there at 10.30, and then you're ready for them at 10.30. And then what happens is they say, I'll be there between 8 and 12, and then they don't show up until 4.45, and your whole day is just wrecked, and you're frustrated, right? When somebody doesn't follow through and doesn't do what they say they will do, it's frustrating. Have you ever sent a text message and thought that it went through, but it didn't go through? Yeah, it's frustrating, isn't it? And then you think your person got it, and you're like, well, why didn't they respond, right? And then you're trying to make plans together, and the plans fall apart because the message didn't go through. Frustrating, isn't it? Well, for people who are managing work, for people who are bosses at work, it feels the same way when they're counting on somebody to do something, and they come back, and they haven't done it. It's frustrating. Sometimes many plans can hinge on one thing, and one thing goes wrong, and the whole plan starts to fall apart, all because one person didn't do what they said they would do. This just tells us a little bit of how important it is to be where you say you're going to be and do what you say you're going to do, as some workplaces often put it. And finally, Proverbs 12:24 says, The hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. This explains a lot of why that servant is where he is. Uh, I didn't put it in the handout, but verse 2 says that that servant was set over everything that Abraham has. Uh, So here's a man who, on one hand, is a servant, probably forced into slavery or servitude, but through his diligence is put over everything in Abraham's house. Even in a terribly unjust system, even when God sees all of that injustice, through hard work, he's able to become the equivalent of a VP at a Fortune 500 company. Here he is on top of so much and a man of great authority simply because he has worked his way there. It's the same way in the workplace today. For every bit that you can look around and just hang your head and say, oh, this company is so messed up. Oh, everything about our economy is so broken right now. You can get frustrated by those things, yet... People are always looking for employees that they can count on and rely on. And the people higher up the chain are looking for people who can work for them, who are reliable and who they can count on. And so diligence and discipline and being reliable and following through can still get you moved up in the workplace, even when the company is messed up, even when the economy is messed up, even when things are not how they should be. That's one thing this servant shows to us in both the diligence of his work and in the ways that that diligence seems to already have rewarded him as he lives and works with great authority, even as a servant in Abraham's house. The truth is, there have been different economic systems since the very beginning, right? Sometimes very unjust systems like slavery is how economies work. Sometimes systems that are a little more just, like ours, where you can choose your job and you work for money, but there's still plenty of opportunity to rip each other off, and all kinds of other systems as well. But at the end of the day, we're all going to wake up and go to work on the next day, right? And we need to know what to do, whether the system we're living in is just or unjust. 
And what the Bible is interested in is, okay, what are we actually going to do tomorrow morning? It doesn't, it doesn't give us so much, here's how to overturn the system and revolutionize it. That's not really what the Bible is interested in because King Jesus is going to come and take care of all of that. God says, I see the injustices. Your part is to do a good job where you work. Whether things are just right how they're supposed to be there or whether things are not just right and how they're supposed to be there. Your part is to take the assignments when they're appropriate do as your boss asks you to do, and do it as diligently and as well as you can. The example we have this morning of that level of determination, that level of diligence, that level of reliability is found in the way that this servant works like this. So that's our first principle this morning. Your boss is counting on you. That can be good for your boss, for your blessing to him or her. It could be good for you if they realize that you're reliable and they can count on you. That can come back to reward you in the future as well. So there's number one. Let's move on to the second one, which is found on page 10 of your handout this morning. Second wisdom principle we see in this servant's work ethic is that it's God alone who gives success. This is kind of a counterpart to the first point, you might say. This is seen in the way that before pivotal moments, this servant offers prayer to God and says, God, will you bless my endeavors? And then afterwards, when his work is blessed, he takes time to look to God and thank him and honor him, acknowledge God's role in his success. Let's look at a few points where he does that. In verse 12, the servant has come to the well the women are coming out to draw water. Here's the pivotal moment, right? My, my master's future wife is probably among these women. Oh boy, here's the moment. He looks up to God in verse 12 and says, Oh Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today. Right? Big moment. He looks to God and says, God, would you give me success today? It works out well. In verse 27, he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. So, in other words, I have come this far because it's God who has given me success this far. Later in verse 52, when the family consents and blesses this marriage and says, yes, yes, uh, Isaac can marry Rebekah, he looks to God in verse 52 and says, Abraham, servant, heard their words and he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. Here he is granted success again and he bows and says, thank you, God. And then in verses 55 and 56, he wants to leave, and 56 says why. He says, don't delay me because the Lord has prospered my way. So here's a servant then who, before the big moment, looks to God and says, God, I need your help. Will you give me success? And after the big moments, looks up and says, God, it was you who gave me that success. Thank you for that success. That's a real-world example of what we see in Proverbs like Proverbs 3.6. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Or Proverbs 16.1, the plans of the heart belong to a man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. And Proverbs 16.3, commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. So we make our plans, we work hard, but we are the ones who bring ourselves success. We're just the ones who do the work. It's God who brings success. 
The farmer or the gardener can spend days tilling, right? Tearing the soil, getting it just right. And then can spend another day planting all of the seeds and then can come back to water regularly and to fertilize regularly and to weed regularly and then to prune as the plant grows. And then when the harvest is there, the farmer or the gardener comes back and gathers all the harvest. You do all this work diligently and the more diligently you do it, probably the better result is gonna be. But who makes the plants grow and who makes them blossom and fruit? It's the Lord that does that, right? You can't with all of your power just, come on, I want a tomato. Right? You can't do that. The Lord is the one who gives the success and gives the fruit from your labor. If you're in sales, you've got a big meeting coming up, right? You're going to give the big pitch to the client. You can pick just the right restaurant that you know that client loves. You can set the room just right for the negotiation. You can study that client and know everything about them. You can give them the perfect handshake with great eye contact on the way in, sit down, give the sales pitch perfectly, be honest about it, but show them how great your services and products are. You can do all this just right. You can time the big question at just the right time, but whether they sign on the dotted line or not is up to the Lord. He's the one who gives the response and gives the return. Unless the Lord builds the house, the workmen labor in vain, right? And unless the Lord keeps the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. We do the work and God gives the success. And so the instruction in Proverbs 3, 6 and in Proverbs 16, 13 is to acknowledge him every step of the way, commit your work to him, and you'll see even, very probably, more return come back because of this. Beforehand, asking for his help because he's the one who gives success. Afterward, thanking him for giving you success, telling others it was God who gave you success. It's often said that the book of Proverbs is not the book of promises, and that is true. You cannot rely on these things as if they were promises of God. You can't pray for success beforehand, and then the one time it doesn't come back and bless you with success. Oh, God didn't keep his promise to me. It doesn't work like that. The book of Proverbs are generalizations about how life and the world work under God's sovereign hand. So the truth here is not every time you ask for success, you'll get it. It is, if you make a habit out of asking the Lord to bless you and thanking him when he does, you're probably going to see more success in your work life because that's how the Lord arranges things. So I wonder for you, in your work life, in your rhythm, we all have different jobs, those of us that have jobs. Where's that pivotal point that right beforehand you should pause and say, okay, God, here's the moment, would you give success? Pause right then. Just put it into your habit, put it into your routine. I'm going to stop right then and ask the Lord for success. And where's that moment where you find out if it worked or not? Where's that moment where you find out if your boss is pleased or if the client really did sign on the dotted line or whatever it was, if it really worked? Can you work it into your routine then to pause right then and say, God, thank you. It was you who did that. How incredible would it be if the Lord just gave you a streak of like five assignments in a row that he unusually blessed because you asked him to. And then your boss, after the first one, was like, hey, great job. And you said, hey, thanks. I asked the Lord for help and he gave it to me. And then after the third one was like, man, you are on a roll. And you can say, well, thanks. I've, I've, I've been asking the Lord for help and he's given it to me. And then after the fifth one, 
Your boss is like, what is going on? Man, you are on fire. And you can say, well, I've been asking God for help and he's been giving it to me. What a testimony that can be in your workplace if the Lord grows you into the kind of wise worker who does good work in the first place and then begins to bless you like that so that you can say, I asked the Lord for help and it was the Lord who gave it to me. These are some of the ways the Lord, I think, desires to use us in the workplace like that. So there's, there's our second wisdom principle seen in Abraham's servant. It is God alone who gives success. Let's flip to page 11 for the third one. Those first two were more general. This one's much more specific. There's a particularly wise thing the servant does that is spoken of in the Proverbs. Third principle is your appetite can deceive you. Let's read the proverb first this time. Proverbs 33, one through three. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies for they are deceptive food. What's that mean? What's he talking about there? Well, when somebody of great means, the big boss at the company, the wealthy politician, the very powerful person, invites you out for a, a work dinner, a work lunch, something like that, they usually aren't doing it out of the kindness of their heart. They're usually doing it because they want something, right? And if you're not careful, the good food in front of you can deceive you. Your appetite can get strong. And you say, oh man, I never get to eat a steak like that. I'm getting lobster too. I'm going to have fun. And you're cutting it up and you're eating it and having fun. And the next thing you know, you've spent $50,000 of your boss's money on antivirus protection or something, right? Like the food can deceive you in that way. This used to happen sometimes in a place I used to work at. Some of you know I used to be a waiter at a really fancy restaurant, and there were these private boardrooms that would get booked for anything, a wealthy person's birthday party or all kinds of work meetings and things like this. One thing that would happen is pharmaceutical companies would come out with a a new drug, and they would want to make sure that all the doctors knew about it and favored it when they were writing prescriptions. And so they would send invitations to all the doctors in the area, free steak dinner, we want to thank you for how well you're taking care of your patients, and come and enjoy a steak dinner on us, and usually there is this uh, guise of education, you could say, and the doctors would say a lot of times, yeah, free, free dinner, I'll, I'll be there, and then they get there, and it's a sales pitch for, for the drug, right, so that those doctors will favor writing prescriptions for that drug instead of some other drug. And just watching it, I and mean, some of them did this really honestly, some of them not so honestly, But you could see a difference between the doctors that were like, free steak, all right, and the doctors who said, okay, thanks for the presentation. I'm gonna go home and open up New England Journal of Medicine and see about getting an unbiased view on this drug, right? There's a difference between the one who's wise enough to say, yeah, that food was good, but that's not gonna sway my decision, versus the one that's like, food, no, 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 right? That's what this proverb is telling us to enjoy, right? When you sit down with someone who is offering you a really nice meal, don't let your appetite influence the decisions that you're about to make. There's the principle. Let's go back to Abraham's servant. In verse 33, this is the point where he has gone on his long journey He's going to be very hungry, right? Probably eating nothing but a, a little bit of stash that was in, in his uh, knapsack or something. He's dr- had some water. 
he walks in hungry after a long journey and there is a feast on the table. That's the perfect setup for what that proverb is talking about, right? Here's this negotiation that's about to happen. It's going to involve one family blessing a marriage that is going on. And he knows if I sit down and I start eating, next thing you know, I might give all the camels away. I may, who knows what kind of decision I make. And so with all of that delicious food before him, he says, okay, thanks for the food, but first we're going to conduct the business. Why is he doing that? He wants to make sure that his appetite for the food does not influence all the things that they are about to talk about. So the instruction we have from the Proverbs there and from this example of the servant is that when work and food mix, and they often do, watch that the food doesn't influence the decisions that you make. There are people there who know how influential good food is, and they will use it against you to get you to make decisions you wouldn't have otherwise to make. Watch that the food does not influence you. That's number three. Your appetite can deceive you. Fourth principle of wisdom we see in this servant's work is that words matter. This is one of the, you might say, the premier teachings in the book of Proverbs. Words give life and words bring death. Words can build up and words can burn down. They have so much more power than you would think this little tongue in everyone's mouth would really have. That is true at work. Good, wise words in the hallways, over the Zoom meetings, in all the places where you're talking over the phones, can build up a company and a workplace, can build up a home and flourishing and blessing. Gossip in the hallways, lies, deception, can burn a company down and bring suffering upon many. The general teaching here in the Proverbs is that the words of the wise are few and they are carefully chosen. If you want to speak wisely, take your words seriously. Say fewer words, choose them very carefully. Let's flip ahead to page 12 and I'll just read a few Proverbs for you. Twenty-five, fifteen says, With patience, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. Carefully chosen, patient words over time can change the mind of a president, of a king, and can have great impact on everyone in the land. Proverbs 25.1 says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. How valuable would a dozen apples made out of gold on a silver plate be? That valuable is one word given at just the right time. And Proverbs 15.28 say, The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. But the mouth of the wicked just pours forth evil things. This is part of where we get that teaching that the words of the wise are carefully chosen. Right, The heart of the wise thinks about how he's going to answer before he answers. Whereas the one who is foolish and wicked, they just let their mouth pour out whatever. Words always coming out. Several other proverbs about that. This comes true in the servant's life. Flip back to 11 and we'll see a few ways. The servant has gone at this point... He is about to sit down. This is the story that he tells before he sits down to eat. 
And he begins in verse 34, I'll read 34 to 36 for you. He says to them, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master and has become great. He has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold, male servants and female servants and camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. These words are persuasive and carefully chosen because on one hand, he's very honest. Everything he's saying is true. And on the other hand, he is telling this story in a way that emphasizes how appealing the offer is, right? If they're willing to send Rebecca to be Isaac's wife, she is going to live a very good life, blessed by the Lord. He says all of this in a way that really highlights that, right? He's become great. He details the flocks, the herds, the servants, the camels, the donkeys, right? So they're picturing all these wonderful things that Rebecca is going to have. It is going to be kind of the woman of the house over all of this stuff. And then he even sneaks in that Sarah, Abraham's wife, bore him a son when she was old. Why does he sneak that in? Well, because they're going to do the math and say, oh, that means the son is young and is her age, and so, hmm, sounds like a fitting match, right? Sneaks that in persuasively. And then, to him, he has given all that he has. So whoever marries this man will be the lady over all of these things. He tells the story in a way that highlights that, in a way that is particularly wise. Any of that can be done dishonestly, Right? If you have ever sat with someone who is in sales or gotten a telemarketing phone call, you know that people can stretch the truth. If you've ever seen a TV commercial, you know that car commercials can tell you things that aren't quite true about the car that they're trying to sell. It can also be done honestly. You tell the truth, paint things how they are, and what you're offering really is good for people. Well, using carefully chosen and persuasive words can bring back a better result for you or for your boss if you have one. The next paragraphs, the way he goes, he, he tells the story in a way that emphasizes God's hand in it. I won't read the whole thing for you for the sake of time, but over and over he's saying, this happened and then God did this, and this happened and God did that. All right, so it's very clear by the time he gets to the end that God's hand is in this thing. That can be done honestly as well. When God is blessing something, you can say it. Or it can be done dishonestly also, right? How many times have you heard someone try to convince somebody of something by just saying that, oh, this is God's will for you, this is what God wants for you, right? Playing the God card persuasively can be done deceptively. But this servant's telling the truth, and he's doing it honestly. Sometimes it is true, and it is honest. And when it is, use the words persuasively. Then... After all of this buildup, after making the opportunity look as appealing as it really is, as showing God's hand in it as much as it really is, then finally in verse 49, he asks the question, right? He times it just right. Now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me, then I might turn to the right hand or to the left. So after all of that other stuff, he asks the big question. Can you imagine if instead he had said, I will not eat until I have said what I had to say, and they say, speak, and he says, I've come here to take your daughter. Right, start off with that. How's that gonna work? Not so well, right? But he times it much better than that. He builds up and then asks the big question. 
a word fitly chosen, right? A word at the right time that's the right word is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Here is a servant who uses his words wisely and carefully to bless his master and bring about success and blessing even to his master Abraham. And in that, we see an example of how much your words in the workplace can bless the people you work for, how much your words at home can build up your home, and how much your words wherever you are can build a place up as powerful as they are to tear it down as well. So the instruction then that the Proverbs give us, the example we have here is choose your words wisely. Tell the truth, say them at the right time, and let that bless your boss. Sometimes it's the right time to give your boss some input and some feedback. And sometimes it's not the right time. It takes wisdom to tell one from the other, doesn't it? Choose wisely, choose the timing wisely. Sometimes something should be said, and sometimes Something shouldn't be said. It takes wisdom to tell the difference and to build up the place where you work. Sometimes you can say something tactful, like that shoe is a little small for your foot, and sometimes you can say things a little less tactful, like your, sh- your, your foot is way too big for that shoe. Right? Sometimes you say it with tact, sometimes you don't say it with tact. Choose wisely, choose the words well, and bless everyone that you work with. So there we have then four principles that we can take from our Lord that he just hands to us and says, my son, receive my wisdom because the gospel should change the way that we work. If you believe in Jesus Christ, that should change everything about the way you live, including the way you conduct yourself at the workplace, including if you work at home, the way you do your work at home. When that happens, when, when Christians gain a reputation for being good workers, when it even gets as specific as employers saying, oh, you go to Calvary Baptist? Oh, those people are always such good workers. That testimony blesses the gospel, blesses the name of Jesus Christ, and helps us to even expand the name of Jesus throughout this whole city and throughout even the whole land. This is just some little bit of the wisdom that God would like to give to us this morning. And I hope what it does for you is just put a hunger in your heart to be more and more each day that kind of worker, the kind of worker that blesses the people they work with, the kind of worker that displays Christian wisdom. The truth is, these are just small examples of the wisdom that our Father loves to give to his children. And that tells us something about him, that it is so good to be a child of God, to have a Father who likes to teach us wisdom. How how good is it to be one of his children? I want to speak then to those of you this morning who would not call yourselves children of God, uh, who would say, well, any number of things, but not ultimately that your faith is in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and by his blood you have been made one of the children of God. There are really two things you can do this morning. One is you could just take those four principles, take them to work, and get yourself some more success at work and just kind of let that be that. That works because his ways are good and you can find success by following in his ways more easily than following in your own ways. But I want you to see that those are just pieces 
of what God wants to give you. To take those four principles, write them down, try to live by them, and then just, just enjoy that in the workplace would be a little bit like if instead of wisdom this morning, uh, I had given you a really nice bike chain, like a $100 bicycle chain, and uh, maybe like one set of handlebars and one bicycle wheel. And you walk out saying, man, look at all this stuff that I had that I didn't have before, right? And this is a good bike chain. This thing will really, this is a good wheel. I got good stuff from God's word. And yes, it is good. It will serve you. But here's the thing. It's just pieces of the picture. And God would like to give you the whole bike. God would like to call you into a relationship where he can call you son and you can call him father. And where that is why he is teaching you wisdom because you're one of his children. So my invitation to you is, Come and be one of his children. Come and look to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for not just tidbits on how to do life well, but eternal life flourishing with him forever. Sins forgiven, resurrection from the dead, and a God worthy of worshiping. This is the, the real bike. This is the whole thing that the Lord would offer you this morning. So I invite all who are willing, come to Jesus Christ Look to God as Father and hear his words, my son, my son, hear my wisdom. Let's pray together and prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper.